Blog Talk Radio. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Our guest is Miles Sorensen. He's earned an MFA from the USC School of Cinema Television, where his thesis film, the Arsonist premiered at the Venice Film Film Festival, and in 2006 he relocated to New York and currently works as a producer on A and E's The First 48. Plato's Reality Machine is his first feature film, and Carol, we're both very happy to have Miles joining us today on the show, aren't we? Yes, thank you, thank you, Miles, very much. Um, I'm really excited to learn more about your feature. Yeah, no, I'm excited to be on the show, so thank you very much for uh, having me on. It's it's uh, interesting to see someone who works in the industry like you do and then decides that you want to write and direct your own film. So tell us, let's start with how you, where you got the idea for your script. Yeah, you know, I, um, I came out of uh, film school about 10 years ago and, you know, had a lot of scripts at that time and, you know, kind of got going working in television as an editor to, you know, get going in the industry and earn a living, but, you know, I always wanted to do my own projects, my own feature films. And so this project, uh, Plato's Reality Machine, I started writing probably in about 2009. And, um, you know, I wrote it as a project that uh, I wanted to shoot and make here in New York and uh, finished writing it around early 2011. And, uh, you know, it's it's a film that has kind of a lot of different elements to it it's you know got elements of a romantic comedy elements of uh kind of a you know woody allenish new york feel and then also the sci-fi element with a video game and i had the um the live action scenes involving the characters in new york uh for a long time but it was a very talky film you know it had a lot of different uh basically about six singles three men and three women in their interlocking relationships but i knew i needed some kind of visual element and so once I came up with this video game idea then I knew that I had the the third element of the film and that's kind of when I got serious about getting it done great well um did did you uh, how did you get your attachments let's talk about that well you know around that time I went and saw uh, an independent film called cold weather which is uh you know sort of a medium budget film by Aaron Katz, who's someone who's one of the Mumblecore directors, and there was a really great actress in that film, Trieste Kelly Dunn, who, um, you know, had been in that film a couple of other independents around that time. I thought she was great. I thought she had real star potential. And, uh, you know, I reached out to her and told her about the idea I had for the film, 
sent her the script, and she really liked it, and she, you know, we attached her to the film early on, and so that was the first kind of um, attachment we had, and that also allowed us to kind of move forward, you know, get everyone else involved, and get the whole project rolling. Well, did you go to her agent or her manager? How'd you get to her? You know, I actually just reached out to her directly. Um, you know, I met, she was at a screening in New York, and I kind of spoke to her briefly there, and then followed up, you know, via Facebook, and and I kind of skipped, you know, avoided going the manager route. She's become since then quite a bit bigger star, you know, but at the time she really wasn't, so it wasn't that difficult to uh, get a hold of her. I love that. I've I've seen. Uh, I like to go back and watch films in the seventies and eighties, and you'll see the producers and directors who really picked some extraordinary filmmakers early on uh, right. to be in their films. Sometimes you see. People who are a top A-list actors, they're only in a small bit part, but they you're right, enough. you're right, yeah, you, early you on, yeah. So good for you. You saw right. something in her, huh? I did, you know, and I'm glad to see her, um, you know, kind of blow up. She's been on the Cinemax series Banshee, um, which yeah. she's been on for the past two or three years, which kind of has a cult following, although unfortunately she was just killed off that show. Um, and she's on Believe on NBC, and she's got a bunch of uh, other feature projects going on. So I think she's someone, you know, we're going to be hearing from for a, a long time. Great. Well, let's go back to raising money and tell us about, did you create a pitch package to raise your funds? You know, not really. You know, I had, before this, I had a, a different uh, script, which I was trying to raise, you know, a, a quite a bit bigger budget for. And I, and I did do that kind of thing. And, you know, I have an agents out here in New York and we were developing that. And, um, you know, that was a project with a budget range of about half a million to a million. And I, I was, to be honest with you, I was getting frustrated of trying to get that project off the ground. And um, and I sort of wrote this one as something I knew I could do, um, you know, on a budget and not have to go through all the different hoops. And so, uh, you know, we did a, um, a lot of it was my own, you know, money that I earn as an editor and a producer I put into the film. And then we did a Kickstarter campaign pretty early in the days of Kickstarter, and so we raised uh, a lot of our funds that way as well. That sounds great. Well, tell us about the Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, we did that in uh, 2011, the summer of 2011, and again, pretty pretty early in the days of Kickstarter, and I just you know kind of found out about it. And so, um, you know, I pulled in the – I pulled in – four different producers here in New York of various levels of experience that I know from my time here in New York. And um, and we all worked together on putting together a campaign, shooting a video for that, you know, putting the uh, all the literature together and, and um, at, you know, attaching more crew members and then doing our 30-day Kickstarter campaign. And, um, you know, we uh, kind of learned a lot, but we hit our goal and uh, were able to raise a significant amount of our budget that way. And, uh, you know, it wasn't easy. It never is. But um, it it was useful in a lot of ways, right? Because by doing that, we had two or 300 followers who not only donated film, I mean, donated money so we could help make the film, but um, became key in our marketing throughout the process, even years later in the film festival arena and everything else, you know. So it's it kind of like I think it's kind of become a standard way to to make a lot of low budget films. Yes, it definitely has because we've run campaigns through from the Heart Productions for Indiegogo. We're a partner right. with them, and <clears throat> I find that filmmakers sometimes 
even though they don't need the money as much as they need it for marketing. So you found that was very helpful for you, right? Yes, absolutely. They're kind of a built-in, you have your, your built-in kind of, you know, uh, audience, built-in cheerleaders for the project right from the beginning. And the minute you open up your Facebook page, all the Kickstarter backers come there. You know, we had a couple, we won a uh, project of the day and project of the week contest with IndieWire, which again, you kind of email all your Kickstarter backers and they help win those contests. And yeah, they're worth a lot more than just the, um, you know, just the monetary aspect. And, and yeah, no, it was a difficult choice between going uh, between Indiegogo and Kickstarter. But uh, they're both great platforms, but at the time we thought Kickstarter was better for us. Well, uh, and uh, how much did you raise? You know, we raised a little over $10,000, and then um, the rest of the budget came from my own money as well as money that we raised from family and friends. How wonderful. Congratulations. So you. you must have made this um, very uh, relatively inexpensive. You know, you're right, and and it, and it is a and I see you know it, it is a project that uh, I conceived as something that could be makeable on a budget. You know, um, it's a very dialogue-driven film. It isn't like it's a thriller or an action movie. And um, I, I also set most of our. You know, we're here in New York City. It's a very cinematic. It's a beautiful city, and so I wanted to max out the production value of this city. But um, we still didn't have a lot of scenes with a lot of extras. I wanted to do something we could shoot quickly. And so, yes, I conceived of it as something doable on a budget, even though it, it, of course, exceeded the original budget that we set out. Of course, I think whatever budget you set, you often exceed it, and so we did too. Um, and I also you know, have a lot of relationships here in New York and was able to get a lot of things for free. You know, Our producer was able to get his transportation for free. We got um, our cinematographer, Dalmar Weaver-Madsen, who was a great, up-and-coming female cinematographer. She was just at Sundance with the film. She um, she came out of UCLA Film School where she had won the ASC Heritage Award, which is kind of an award for, you know, young cinematographers. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and so, but, you know, she was young. This is her first feature as a, as a DP, and, you know, she was able to get us pretty much an entire camera package for free from Aeroflex. Oh, and so, uh, yeah, so we were able to, you know, kind of maximize the budget we did have to get as much as we could for free. And obviously a lot of the people on the film worked for deferred pay and everything else, too, you know. And they're all very proud of the film, I assume. Yeah, absolutely, you know. And I think we punched above our weight as far as our budget. And I and I like to think I was smart about – I didn't want to try to – I think a lot of people on the when make a low-budget film try to – make the wrong genre of film. So I try, tried to play the strength of shooting on a low budget. We we had a great lighting kit, you know, and great cameras and and we had, you know, I made sure we had time to do rehearsals and everything else and treat it, you know, take our time with everything cuz, you know, if you don't have a lot of money, then you, your time is your ally and you kind of have to use it. This is quite true. And you use the city of New York. This is what Woody Allen always does. I think he's really smart. A lot of our best producers would only shoot in or around New York. Yeah, you know, you're right. It's a very cinematic city. I mean, unfortunately, L.A. doesn't have quite the uh, cinematic backdrop that, you know, New York does. And so, you know, if you're going to have two characters talking, why not have them talk in front of the skyline, you know? <laughs> that looks a lot more dramatic. So yes, we did, we did things you like wrote that. It. You know? <laughs> Careful and, and uh, thinking ahead about how many setups and how many locations you had. Did you... Uh, controlled that as a writer to keep it within reason? You know, absolutely we did. Yeah, you know, we shot it. The original shoot was a 10-day shoot. Um, 
we had one day of pickups a year later. Um, but, you know, actually for a 10-day shoot, we we did have a lot of locations. We had eight or nine locations. And so I tried to keep it to a minimum, but we still were often moving every day to where we were going, you know. But I was also, as I was writing, thinking about locations that I knew I would have access to, you know, like a friend of mine who had a amazing apartment in midtown Manhattan with a view of the skyline. I, I knew I could use that for one of the scenes. Someone else's rooftop, again, with a great view. Um, you know, so you try to maximize what you have access to. That's right. That's what Cassavetes did, so you're on the right, right. track. Right. Right, good. Um, well, uh, tell us, what did you do about editing? Who did the edit for you? You know, I had a friend of mine, uh, Mari Beckman-Lau, who is someone I went to USC film school with, and she did the rough cut of the film. And then um, after that, I took it myself because, I, you know, I work as a professional editor, and so I did the fine cut and kind of took the film home. But um, but it was good to have her do that first pass and, and get away from it a little bit. Exactly. And then you went on and you edited it? Right. I went on and I edited it. You know, we have these... Um, video game animation sequences, right, which are about, are about 13 minutes of the total running time. And so I had an animator I worked with, uh, James C. Martin, who specializes in this particular kind of an- animation we were using. And so he did all that on his own. You know, I gave him the script. We talked about the look of the of these sequences. He would give me storyboard images of the characters and the sets. And, you know, he would do... He would do uh, one animation. I I'd send it to me. I give him some notes. He'd do another one. But he did all that on his own. Although he did give me some extra angles, so I kind of cut that as well. But that that was a long process. That animation process took over a year after the shooting of the film to get finished. Wow! And usually that's very exp- expensive. How did you handle that? You know it is, and this is a particular program called iClone, which specializes in this particular type of animation, which can do it, you know, not too expensively. And I also got an animator, James C. Martin, who's done a lot of, you know, commercial work, music video work, but he'd never done a feature film, right? So he was willing to work on a budget just to do that first feature film, you know? Um, and so that's well, you kinda... talked about uh, Miles, so say that again. You know, we had an animator, James C. Martin, who... Um, had done a lot of music videos, commercials, but he'd never done a feature film, so he was willing to do this feature film just to have that credit for less than his usual rate, you know. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, did you, um, how did you create your following on Facebook, and did you create your own website for the film? Tell us about your social marketing side. Yeah, you know, we did. Um, we began our Facebook page before we even shot and um, started building up our fan base there, you know, initially from friends and family of myself and all the other crew members. And then slowly as we built, uh, slowly as the project developed, you know, we added a lot of fans of Trieste Kelly Dunn, that actress I mentioned, um, as well as our composer. I got this composer named Raymond Watts who... Um, is a big industrial music musician. He was in a band called uh, KMFDM in the 90s, and he has a he has a big fan following. And so we kind of reached out to all his fans, and they've become you know a, a big part of our uh, social media audience as well. Um, and so you know you find these you know, and as well as fans of, of uh, Machinima. Have you guys heard of Machinima? No. Who's that? Machinima is kind of a new thing where. Um, a lot of young people are telling, using video games to tell 
stories, basically, to make feature films or short films using video game characters, right? So it's kind of like you'll hack into a video game and, and manipulate the uh, characters in the video game and then record voices over the characters and make a feature film that way. And so it's it's kind of this new thing that a lot of young people are doing and hasn't really broken into the mainstream, but you know has its own kind of hardcore fan base. And so kind of what we were doing in the video game was machinima-inspired, and so we, we reached out to uh, a lot of those people interested in all that as well. So we had some, you know, particular fan groups uh built in right from the beginning. Great. Well, when you uh, when you started, um did you get uh your Facebook? Tell me how much uh, how many people did you run your Facebook numbers up to? You know, we probably started at the time of the film, the time of the shoot around 300, 400 maybe, and then building it, building it and all the way through, you know, we had our release theatrical release about two months ago, and we're a little over 1,100, 1,200 right now. And so, where was your theatrical release? We did a theatrical release in L.A. for one week um, in in the end of January, uh, just a couple of months ago. And, um, you know, it was a very useful thing. You, you get a one-week run at this theater that we booked, and... Uh, the arena, the arena screen in Hollywood, and uh, you know we got reviewed by the L.A. Times and um, some good publicity out of it, and it kind of boosted our VOD release. We released on VOD just about a week before that. It would have, it would have been nice to sync it up perfectly, but it was kind of difficult to do that exactly. Well, tell me about the VOD release. Did you get an aggravator to handle all of the VOD markets, or did you go direct? Uh, we did. You know, we yeah we had our we had our uh, festival premiere at the Oaxaca Film Festival in September 2013, and then we were on the festival circuit for about a year. You know, and during that time, I was researching aggregators as well as distributors, and, you know, we got a couple offers uh, from distributors to take the film, but, um, you know, they weren't great offers, and I just had heard too many stories about distributors just taking movies and the filmmaker never seeing a dime, and so I didn't want to go with these uh, these offers that we got. And in the meantime, I'd been researching all the you know, as I'm sure you're aware, so many different aggregator options. And uh, we ended up going with this um, company called the Film Collaborative. And they're a nonprofit, and for, you know, they can end up, but they're able to get you onto the main VOD platforms like uh, iTunes, Amazon VOD, and, and Google Play. So we use them to get on those three main platforms. And I have to say, I've been very happy with them. They've been very communicative, and they got us on the platforms on the date they said they would. And, um, you know, technically all correct. So I've been very happy. And then we're also using a different aggregator called Kino Nation to go up on a whole bunch of other platforms like Snag Films, Hulu, and a, and a lot of other ones. So kind of a high well, I've heard good things about Kino, too. Yeah. Yeah, they've been good to deal with so far as well. You know, they don't – the reason we want to film collaborative is they basically guaranteed us they could get us onto iTunes, which is the the biggest one, you know. And Kino Nation couldn't couldn't quite do that. So, but you know, they were fine to say, okay, you can use uh, Film Collaborative for these platforms, and then use us for everything else. So, so, so you have a non-exclusive with, uh, agreement with both Film Collaborative and Kino. Exactly. Yeah, and neither one of them own the film or anything like that. So, um, I'm happy with the way those deals have worked out. Well, can you tell us what percentages you get from the VOD on either one of them? Um, yeah, Kino Nation takes 20%. Um, 
of anything doesn't cost anything up front and then uh and then film collaborative is a fee so we paid them i think fifteen hundred dollars to go on itunes a little more for uh for amazon and for google play and then they don't take anything and that's for a two-year deal oh yeah so so you just pay them up front per uh so you paid for google and you paid for uh itunes each one of yep. iTunes is the main one, fifteen hundred, and then it's only like two hundred dollars extra for the other two, basically. Okay. So, and and do you get paid quarterly? You get paid quarterly, and so we released in January. So we'll get our first um, we'll get our first check, uh, I believe, this June or July. You know, because they don't get the check until well after the quarter's done or whatever. And so obviously we're you know curious to see uh, what that's going to be. You know, we see some pretty good chatter on iTunes and Amazon and everything else, so we know some people are watching it. Oh, and I should also mention that we also sold the film directly off our website um, via VHX. Okay. And, and for um, downloads? Yeah, for downloads, exactly. And, and that's especially good for international because pretty much all our uh, VOD platforms are U.S. and Canada only, so mm-hmm. one of the only ways to watch it internationally are via the uh, is via the website, and um, you know we're not getting we're not getting an amazing amount of sales, but we're getting one or two sales a day off of that. And it's a lot of international people that you know want to see the film, and are and like I said, are usually fans of Trias Kelly Dunn or fans of our composer Raymond Watts. Well, what uh, I thought Film Collaborative also had some contacts in Europe for uh, distribution. You know, they do. They do. And, you know, it's something maybe I'll explore a little further along the line. But, you know, almost any company, I mean, any uh, country you want to go to in Europe, you're going to need a a translation in that language, which we we didn't have. And so not something I wanted to, you know, explore immediately. Yes. Well, when you start getting your residual checks, you might consider because you will. Great market over there, I'm sure. Right. That's exciting. Well, what what's on the cards next? Are you going to make a second film? Or are you just going to market this? What what it's the you No, know, I uh, I do have a script um which I've been developing for a long time called uh, Far Rockaway which is about an aspiring fashion designer here in New York. And it's um kind of a Cinderella story set in the fashion world. My wife is a fashion designer, so it's something I kind of have learned a lot about in in uh, recent years. And um yeah, it's something that would be a bit bigger budget production, and I've you know got some producers I'm talking to about it. But um, you know, to be honest, I, this whole film, um, Plato's Reality Machine, has been a great experience, but it's also been very exhausting and, and quite a quite a difficult, a great journey, but you know, a very stressful journey. And you know, uh, I uh, we're expecting our first baby in about three or four months. And uh, I'm, you know, have my regular job as a television producer, so that's kind of what I'm going to focus on for the next, uh, well, congrats, the next little while. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> right. Oh, that's going to be great fun. Well, tell me a little bit about your job at the First Forty Eight, please. Yeah, I'm a producer on the First Forty Eight. You know, which is a homicide investigation series. It's it's a long running series on A and E. It's been on about ten years now, and it's. Uh, it follows uh, real-life detectives as they investigate uh, homicides around the country. And I'm a story producer on it. And so, um, you know, we have field producers out in the field shooting uh, these investigations as they occur. <clears throat> and then they'll send all the footage back to us. And I'll kind of work with the editor and the series producers to uh, 
winnow down that footage into uh, our one-hour television program. Um, I was an editor on this show for a long time, and so I know it very well. And uh, it's I'm enjoying though being a producer now and, and having a little bit more uh, a little bit different perspective on it. Well, what are the duties as the producer? You know, the main thing really is you know, as a story producer, is really coming up with the story. Like, you know, we have a case now involving uh, a murder in New Orleans, and there's maybe 50 or 60 hours of uh, footage of the investigation, you know. And so uh, that footage comes back. I'll screen it, you know. And, and during any investigation, there's a lot of red herrings. They'll interview 10 or 11 different witnesses. There's, you know, there's raids and there's different uh, sequences, and they eventually catch the suspect or they don't. And so the first thing you do is kind of determine which which of these elements you're going to use and which ones you're not, you know. And then you kind of break it down into uh, an outline, give that to the editor, they start working, and then you give notes basically as the editor works, right, and say, you know, this seems working, this one isn't, this needs to be shorter, this needs to be longer. So that's basically what the, what the job entails. Well, um, Miles, you were saying that um, there's 50 or 60 hours. Who's shooting those hours do they have, uh, they have we, we have uh, yeah we have producers who live in these cities and they're um they're you know year round and they're attached to these police departments and yeah, they'll go out how exciting. And yeah so they'll go out and they'll go shoot uh investigations as they happen um now if I was a little bit younger it's something maybe I'd like to go do but not at this point <laughs> yeah well i saw that i saw some of them and I was absolutely glued to the set. I am so picky. I like British television. Right. You know, Mars and all of those right. uh, films that I know are well made and good stories. But I was so glued to the set that uh, my daughter was saying, What are you watching? <laughs> I can't tell you why, but I can't stop watching it because right. it's so well edited, the story. You know, it's it is. Right uh, you're right. And it, it is, as far as a lot of, uh, you know, shows on television now, it, they care about cinematic storytelling and visual storytelling. And, you know, um, it's kind of the oldest story in the book, right? Murder investigations. And so the drama is built right in. You don't have to add any drama. You don't have to trump anything up. It's all, you know, very dramatic stories. And if you tell them well, it can be very compelling, you know? It's amazing. And yeah. because I think one of the things I watched was that actually they, the murderer was one of the first suspects, and then they said, no, it couldn't have been him because of some reason. And yet, when they got through the investigation, he was the one who get as far away as possible, and they got him. Right, yeah. No, it's amazing the twists and turns that will happen in real life, sometimes more than you could ever write, you know, more amazing than you, you could write. You would ever write. I, yeah. There's nothing better than real-life stories, right? No, it's true, yeah. So well, you have a great job, and I and from what I've seen, uh, this is a good show. So you, I guess you're just learning daily how to just get better and better at what the. Story. You're right, you know. And and working on a show like this, you learn a lot about how to you know structure, about building for act outs, you know, for commercial breaks, and how to you know find the dramatic moments in a story and maximize them, you know, for an audience. And you keep kind of doing it over and over, so it, it gets ingrained in your. Uh, gets ingrained in your brain a little bit, you know. So I'm sure it will be helpful. And if I ever do want to write a police procedural, I, I would know a lot of, about it at this point, you know. So. Well, I think you'd be able to write a good murder mystery because nothing's better than the truth, true stories. You're right. You're right, yeah. 
And that's what we always, everybody loved, uh, Murder, She Wrote. And, yeah, and that, it was a great series. All the Agatha yeah. Christie stuff, because the clues are in there. Yeah, all the have, way back to Sherlock Holmes, you know. Everybody loves uh, trying to figure these stories out. And it's kind of the oldest, yeah, one of the oldest forms, right, the detective story. So it'll never, it'll never get old, I don't think, you know. No, and actually, Lynn McTarget, I like her work, and she's saying that the majority of people who watch these mystery shows, that it's very good for their mind because you have to maintain, you have to memorize, maintain, and watch, and, and it keeps you thinking. So Right, that's true, absolutely. Yeah, trying to figure things out and look behind what people are saying. You know, and it's it's really interesting, too, to watch a lot of these detectives who are very smart and also understand people very well. And also understand when they're being lied to very well because they so often are, you know. So they're very good judges of character, you know. That was the best part. Um, I really got into the detective. I really liked the person. Right. And that's hard to do when you, you don't have any uh, relationship. I mean, you're not trying to build a character with a story. You're just no, you know, you're right. But that is something that occasionally we, we get these uh, character moments, as we call them, in the in the show. And we try to, you know maximize those when we do get them, learn learn a little bit about their home life, learn about what they like to do, how do they decompress from this, you know, super stressful job, um, how do they cope with the stress of it, and I think those yeah. are great scenes because it helps you understand the, the wider world of, you know, people who have to do this for a living, it's, it's very difficult, you know. Yes, yes. Well, yeah. congratulations uh, on the completion of your first film, and I hope it continues to be a success for you. Um, so tell everybody how they can find you, please. Thank you, Carol. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, the film is available now. Plato's Reality Machine is available on iTunes, Amazon, VOD, and, and Google Play. And you can also watch it on uh, our website, uh, com. And if anyone would like to reach out to me or, or send me any questions or anything, you can reach me at uh, platosreality at gmail.com. And uh, thanks again, again, for having me on the show. I've had a great time. Yes, it's a pleasure to meet you. I'm so uh, honored that you took the time to tell us about your exciting life. Thank you very much, Carol. Okay, thanks, Claire. Yes, thank you both. It was wonderful. And take care, everyone. Be well. Thank you, Claire, as well. Thank you. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.